Good afternoon, everyone. September 3rd, 2017. Welcome to the 36th MBT Fireside Chat. It's good to be back with you after the summer break. Thank you, my lovely wife, Donna, for a good couple of months. We have got so many questions today. We're going to rush through these at an alarming rate. Um, Tom, the first question is from Fabio. It is on uh, life reviews after death and the forgetting process. Uh, Fabio, by the way, is one of those few people that makes donations towards the Fireside Chat this year. So um, thank you, Fabio, for your, your input. Tom, when we transition from our actual experience packet of this lifetime to the next, it is my understanding that once we get logged into the transition virtual reality data stream, we quickly forget our just completed PMR experience packet in the same way we forget a dream when we wake up. If this is so, what happens if and when we are given the choice to use the life review tool? Do we regain a much more detailed and significant memory of our more recent PMR lifetime? And then once assessed all the learning value that we can assess from it, do we then let it go again in the process of projecting a new free will awareness unit with a clean slate intellectual component for our next incarnation? Or is the life review executed maybe more efficiently when we still have not forgotten our previous life? When we when you have that life review and everybody doesn't doesn't go through that process, um, some entities will go through the life review process, others will skip it. It kind of depends on the needs of the individual. If the individual is is um, let's say unaware of the uh, weak points that they have, of the issues that they're facing, of the things that they need to to learn most, then the life review is used to point out to that person what those issues are. So that's the that's kind of the purpose of it. But when you have that life review, it's more like it's not like you're um, you're back in your life. It's like you're seeing your past life as if it were you were watching a movie. You're watching this this past life, and the person controlling the video, if you will, that you're watching, will bring you uh, kind of up close and personal to you in various moments that will point out to you what your weak spots and where your problems are, and the things that that uh, were your challenges and how you responded to those challenges. So it won't necessarily start at the beginning and work through to the end in a review that way. It skips and jumps through your past experience, uh, just to hit the highlights that will show you um, what your challenges were and how you responded to them and the choices that you made. It'll particularly show you the bad choices that you made so that because we're, we're talking about what are my weak points? What do I need to work on next? What are the things I need to have in my mind about what I want to accomplish next time? Um, and you will you will see these very clearly from a you know, kind of an, a third uh, a third party uh, uh, point of view. So you'll be looking at this like you're looking at a movie. You will be able to objectively assess it. You won't be in the emotion of the happening that you're viewing. You're more like a, an outsider looking at this, hearing the words, the thoughts, the interactions, everything that led up to that point, and then seeing the choices you made and what prompted you to make those choices? What what fear, what ego, whatever prompted you to make those choices? And that's just a, a kind of a reminder of, of, of what you were in that just that past life and how you approach things. So that's the point of it. 
So you're kind of a third person looking at a movie, doing analysis of the characters in the movie, and you happen to be one of those characters. Uh, it's that sort of thing. And then when that's over, that's over. And it's not like it brings back all of the feelings and emotions of being there. It's more of a, you know, like the football players. After they get done playing the game, the coach gets them all in a room and he does replays of the game and he shows them where they missed a block or they, uh, you know, were too slow to, uh, you know, pick up the guy, you know, who was crossing the field, uh, that sort of thing. And he points that out to them. And it's, it's not like they're there, but they have memory. They, they can feel it. They can kind of relive it to the point that they know exactly, you know, why they missed that block. So it's that sort of thing. You do relive it in the sense that when you're watching it, you're, you're, feeling the feeling, you're aware of all the details, but you're also uh, removed from it. You're also an objective observer and participator as well. So it's not like you go back into the old life and then forget it again, or that that uh, you see the whole thing. It's just bits and pieces that you need to help understand what you have to work on. All right, Tom, thanks very much. Uh, John, uh, I'm typing away on the screen there in the hope that you see me. John, you're joining us today for the first time, right? Where are you joining us from? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in Thailand at the moment. It's uh, one, yeah, 10 past one in the morning. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks for making the effort. Listen, you've got a couple of questions. Do you want to ask one of yours? You ready? Yes, thanks very much. That's very considerate of you to to come to me first. I've got some. I know you might you might have to leave us just in case. <laughs> you know, it's going to get late. Thanks, John. Go ahead. The yeah. yours. Thanks. Well, uh, well, first of all, uh, should I ask a question that I think will benefit me, or should I ask a question that I think will benefit uh, a lot of people? You feel free to ask whatever question that you think is best suited for the moment. Okay. Well. Um, uh, traveling and, and teaching English would seem to be a good choice. Um, if everybody had some English, then that would be more um, more structure, more meaningful uh, content, and you you can broaden your own you know experience and, and help people out. But we still have to work within the structure of the system, which is uh, Tom. You've talked about the education system a lot, which is which is fine, but uh, what can we do to, to, to speed up this, the, the growth and um, improve the system? Um, and how do you see it improving in the future? So what's the key to, to speeding up its, uh, its, its evolution? Well, as you know, we have to grow uh, ourselves individually. There's nothing else will grow an individual other than from the inside out that person. So we all have to get there on our own. In that sense, it's a, it's a one at a time sort of process. Um, on the other hand, the way we, the way we get ready to the point of where we, we are going to grow up is that we have an environment that makes growing up easier, that makes growing up kind of the, the right next step. And that environment has to be one of Security. See, when you are when you feel secure, when you feel like you know everything's all right, now you have the ability to kind of reach out, go beyond, uh, find the courage to become somebody else. Uh, when you're in the opposite point of view, when you are 
feeling threatened, feeling uh, you know that you have to watch out, that everything out there is is protect, uh, potentially uh, you know a competitor or a problem or something you're going to have to deal with. If you're in that uh, viewpoint of kind of a cornered animal, if you will, then it's really hard to reach out and change yourself to uh, to grow up because you're only thinking about uh, you know the next the next uh, scramble to grab what you what you can get. So creating this environment in which it's easier for people to grow up is kind of the one thing that we can do that will help a lot of people kind of grow up at the same time. You know, will help all of us grow up. Well, of course, that's a that's a, a kinder, gentler, more caring environment, right? It's one where you feel secure. That's an environment where you you feel love where you're, you're living in a, in a place that's all right. Or when you let that ego and fear go, then you feel like you're in a place that's all right. You see, it, it, it's not just the, the environment could come from outside of you, but you can change that environment from the inside of you by letting go of your fear and ego. Because once the fear is gone, then you feel secure. So what we can do to help others is to give them a better environment, which means we care about them, we support them, we stop judging them, we stop uh, being critical, we let them be who they are, and we support their growth. And that gives them a higher probability of growing up. So that's what we can do with, you know, within our circle of the place people we connect to, particularly, you know, our, our friends, our acquaintances, our children, you know, our spouses, and give them that extra space. As a culture, if we grow more, uh, you know, if we grow less fearful as a culture, if there's less fear in the land, if you will, then that culture will produce a higher rate of people growing up into bigger pictures. As our culture is more fear-based, then it'll produce fewer uh, people growing up. So we can make sure that we're not a part of the fear you know, make sure that we are not part of the problem ourselves uh, by fixing our own self and then making sure that our connections with other people are not things that feed fear, not things that, that uh, are feeding their problem, even if we feel we have it under control for our personal problem. So that's the, you know, that's kind of the optimal thing we can do. Um, often people feel like what they need to do is go out and kind of rearrange uh, things. You know, well, we have uh, politicians or we have, um, you know, priests or we have uh, uh, economic leaders or whatever who are instilling fear. And the thing to do is to get rid of those people because they're instilling fear in everybody else. Well, they represent us. So just basically cutting off the head of the hydra won't help. It just grows another head as long as we are the way we are. So we do have to change us. Now, cutting off a head or changing the, the system in that way is symptomatic. You're not, really, you're not really changing the cause, you're changing the symptoms of the cause. Okay, that, that politician or, or a person who's creating that fear, that's a symptom of us and who we are, not the cause of us and who we are, just a symptom. It's reflective of us. So if you can change symptoms, well, everybody will feel better. You know, it's like taking a pill to get rid of a headache. You know, you're just getting rid of the symptom, not the cause. 
And in the short term, that makes you feel better because you've you've uh, gotten rid of something that's that's irritating or creating a problem. But it doesn't fix the underlying cause, which means you'll get another headache one day because you haven't really fixed the cause of the headaches. You've just suppressed the symptom for a while. So that's. You know, so I'm not saying that we should never try to change our outside environment because that's just changing, you know, working on symptoms. Getting rid of symptoms that are that are painful is helpful, but just understand it's not solution. It's just feel better for the time being. We need to we need to change fundamentally from the from the uh, bottom up from the ground up. So what do I see in the future? I see that uh, we will likely, in the near two or three or four or five decades, probably in this uh, century anyway, see a rather marked um, growth in the quality of consciousness. I don't think it'll be easy. I don't think it'll be without uh, taking maybe a step back before you take a step forward. But I think we will in this century, maybe the next even two decades, move forward significantly more and and faster and more significant than has ever happened before in the history of mankind and that's because now we have the tools to do that we have uh we have an internet which basically makes this world not so big as it used to be communications wise things spread ideas spread uh, um you know what's going on in one place is now going on everywhere because of the, the internet that we have. So that makes us uh, more possible that, that when you have people growing up, they will influence other people to grow up. I think that's, a, that's good news. And I believe that uh, before long, uh, the scientists will be forced to uh, declare that this physical reality is a virtual reality, which will then raise the question of, you know, well, actually, I won't say it that way. It will, it will make the point that we are a subset of something larger. And just people understanding from the, from the high priests of Western culture that we are a subset of something larger, bigger than us, because that's necessary if this is a virtual reality, that there's, it's being made elsewhere in other. So we're a subset. That, I think, will get a lot of people thinking about what that means. And if they can see a bigger picture that has to do with consciousness and love and caring and that being our purpose, then I think we can maybe make a, a pretty dramatic change in a pretty short amount of time. So I'm very hopeful. I tend to be an optimist and I'm hopeful that uh, you know several decades from now we'll begin to see that process start. The process itself may take several decades. So before that process is maybe complete, maybe toward the end of the century, but I think we're going to start it in a couple of decades. So I'm very hopeful with it. Um, so the, the short the short answer is the best thing you can do is get rid of your own fear and your own ego. That will help the rest of the world probably more than anything else that you can do. Because when your light shines, it shines on everybody around you. It just makes it easier for other people to do the same. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And um, I'm much more optimistic because of your work. People are identifying that fear and dealing with it. So that's a good thing. 
uh, but in the classroom, there's a lot of fear, you know, that sometimes the students are just scared that the, the teacher is going to ask them a question. They're not going to know the answers. They're going to be humiliated. And then that fear is a, a mirror image of the ego in the teacher sometimes where they're frustrated and angry that the students are not, not getting it. And so how, how do we deal, how do we deal with that? that kind of fear on that level i mean you've talked about class sizes being excessive at 30 i might have 50 in a class uh and um some people like uh imagine themselves as like a flag or a piece of cloth or something blowing in the wind and that fear can just go right past them is that a good thing to do or is that just avoiding looking at your own fear and if it's in my experience, does it ever really go away? If I can relate to it, does it ever go away? Or do, do I just get to a level of awareness where I can make a choice? Oh, it does go away. Uh, eventually, you start out just making choices. You start out with the intellect involved in, in uh, not acting out that fear or you know, not acting on that fear. If you're the teacher and you're starting to get frustrated with the students because they don't seem to be paying attention or they're not interested then that uh, your own fear and ego will then make those students even less interested in your class. It'll push it further, which will make your frustration grow more. And the whole thing turns into a very bad, you know, downward spiral to where you get a very suboptimal result. So in the beginning, it's your intellect that catches yourself being frustrated and being upset that the students aren't really trying and just, let that go. Figure the students are who they are. They are the way they are. How can you connect with them in a way that's helpful to them? Maybe lecturing to them, lecturing to them isn't the right way to connect. You know, maybe there's another way that you can that you can speak with them and and connect. See if there's something else that you can do to make that better. Uh, try to understand where they're coming from. Why do they feel the way they feel? What what is causing their energy, their fear, their upset? Um, you know, why are they are why are they the way they are? And if you understand that, you can get into their minds. Then you can probably modify. You won't be so angry anymore. You realize that they're just caught up in a in a world that's pushing them around and pulling them this way and that way. They don't have a lot of experience. They're not sure which which way is up at this point in their life. And they are struggling, trying to do the best they can, juggling all the things that they've got to juggle in the part of life that they're in. And with that feeling of empathy for them as students, then the frustration will go away a little bit. But if you see them as a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, little adults sitting out there, in your classroom and you expect them to act a certain way, be interested in what you're saying, uh, care about the learning, want to understand, and they're just not doing it, then you're just going to be frustrated because you have have an expectation of where their heads are and what they should be, and you're not working with who they really are. So if you start with a with an idea of, of you know, this is the way the student should be, they should be attentive. They should be wanting to learn. They should be inquisitive. They should have, um, you know, curiosity. They should find the value in this. Well, that's your sense of what they should be. That's not helpful. As a teacher, you have to get into what's their sense of reality and work at it that way. 
because you're not communicating with people unless, you know, it's a two-way, it's a good two-way street. So that would be your own, you know, stepping out of your own way. If, you know, if we're talking on a teaching situation, you need to get out of your own way. Let your, your, your expectations and the things that, that you want, put those go off to the side. What do your kids want? What, you know, what would they want out of this class? Why is it that they feel the need to not pay attention, to do something else? And you may end up with a whole different approach to what you're doing. Now, whether or not the system within which you teach will allow you to use a different approach or not, you know, that's not another whole question. In order to be the better teacher, you may have to fight with your own administration to uh, you know, allow you to do things that are not you know, the, the standard way of viewing uh, the kids in the classroom. But in general, our, our schools tend to be kind of dysfunctional. The teachers and the students are at odds uh, with each other rather than uh, working together to achieve something they both want. The kids often see themselves as, as uh, you know, they have to be there. They have no choice. And they're being, you know, lectured to, which nobody likes. You know, people like a discussion about something they're interested in, but nobody likes to be lectured to. You know, they're forced to do this and they're forced to do that. And just the climate of being forced is enough to make them irritable and not want to listen. It's just the, you know, human nature is like that. So there's a lot of things that have to change in a school setting to make it work. And just the quality of the teaching is just one of them. There's a lot of other things that, that feed that environment of dysfunction besides, you know, the instructor and the, and the kids. It's the whole um, culture that's inside of, uh, you know, inside of schools that creates this, this uh, lack of cooperation between the students and the teachers, between the students and the administrations. It's not like they're all there working together to achieve a goal they all want. You know, I want to be educated. I want to understand the world better. And you're going to help me do that because you're the teacher. Great. Let's work together and, and do this. You know, that's not the attitude. The attitude is I have to be here. You know, it's like going to jail. You know, I get told what to do. I get pushed around. I'm told when to stand up, when to sit down, when to talk, when not to talk, when to eat my lunch, when, you know, when I'm done. Uh, and I'm dealing in this, this uh, kind of a culture that is that uh, sees me as just a, you know, a, a cog in a wheel that has to turn at a certain time or not. And that makes them grumpy. That makes them unwilling to cooperate. That makes them want to do anything but pay attention. You know? So it's that whole environment that, that, is, that is difficult in an educational situation. But yet that environment is imposed from the top, usually by a school board or a principal or something else. You know, that is the attitude you know they see the kids as as uh, their charges and they are not able to do what they want or or in, or pursue what they're interested in they're told what to do and when to do it and it's uh it's unfortunate it's just not an optimal situation for learning and again uh, the teacher to student ratio it's really hard to teach in this cooperative let's learn when you're talking to 30 or 40 or 50 people, you see, that gets to be a, a problem. If it was just you and three kids, wow, you could have a really good relationship. But when it's you and 33 or 43 kids, 
now you're more of a drill instructor than you are a teacher. You, know, you have to uh, you have to get everybody to do the same thing at the same time because you can't work any other way. It's a very difficult situation that the form of schooling that we impose here through our administration and our and our structure and our philosophy is just a very very inefficient way to teach. It's a very inefficient way for kids to learn. So uh, the school process is a tough one to work in. So if you're a teacher and you're trying to trying to make a difference, first thing you have to do is get the kids to trust you that you're not there to bully them. You're there to help them, give them information that's going to be useful to them. So the first thing there is you have to convince them that this information will be useful, that whatever it is you're trying to teach to them is something that will make them be a more well-rounded, a more functional, a more uh, you know, uh, able to think and able to think critically. And you, know, you have to convince them of what the value is in it rather than just say, here's something you need to learn. All right, turn to page such and such. I want you to memorize you know, these three paragraphs. That's like work and, and they don't see any point in it. And if they don't see any point in it, they can't get interested and they're not gonna work and they won't pay attention. So just even creating a sense of value would be a good first step. And that's something the teacher can do with his classes is to help them see that there is value in it. What are they gonna get out of it? What is it going to do for them in the long run? And that may not be an easy sell, but at least that's something that, uh, you know, that maybe we should try. That's one of the, one of the things that maybe makes a difference between a really good teacher and a poor teacher is that the good teacher sees each of his students as, uh, not, you know, not prisoners that have to obey, but as little individuals that warrant his respect or her respect that the, the teacher actually respects the kids and know that they're growing up and they're going to have a life one day and they're going to have to make choices and they're going to have to know things. And, you know, I'm here to help you, you know, make better choices and, and know the things you're going to need to know, be the person you need to be and why that's important. So if the, if the teachers feel that you respect them and are trying to give them information that will be useful to them, now they'll pay attention. They'll stop throwing the spitballs at each other and they'll start listening to what you say. So, you know, that's about as much advice as I can give about, you know, how do you teach kids, particularly when you have a whole classroom full of them? It's a tough, tough job because of this, the cultural situation in which we place the students and the teachers very quickly. An adversarial relationship develops between teachers and students. And once that develops, your your probability of teaching them anything goes way down. Okay, thanks, Tom. Another person we do have joining us in the middle of the night, halfway around the world, is is Mark. Mark, welcome to the Fireside Chat. Um, what Tom was just saying, I think your next question leads into that really nicely. So, uh, your life question is 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 up next. It's for you. Hey, everyone. Uh, first, I want to say I'm very appreciative. I'm very appreciative of the MBT trilogy, Tom, and all of your videos. Without them, I feel I would be very lost uh, in life. So, you know, so thank you very much. Um, You're welcome. I was born into a situation where, where the love I received as a child was not a lot from my parents, or better explained, 
my parents gave me a hundred percent of their love, which wasn't that much. Um, I had low self-esteem for most of my life. I believe love existed, but not everyone got to experience, least of all me. Uh, maybe the only saving grace was a voice in my head telling me that I was going to be a great person one day, which I generally scoffed at since I had never felt great, nor could I see a path to ever feeling or being great. Uh, my father died when I was 30. I knew there had to be something larger to this reality than just being sad, working, and dying. Uh, I earnestly began spiritual growth, or at least what I thought was spiritual growth, first reading into Eastern religions and philosophy. Then I found plant medicine and other psychotropic drugs, and marijuana, MDMA, and LSD. Uh, when I did ayahuasca, I was shown that reality is much larger than what I knew. I was shown that I was a loved child of the universe, and it really helped me let go of many fears to the point where I generally began to feel like I was a great person. Um, later, I had an experience with a hypnotherapist where I went back to see myself as a child, and the hypnotherapist asked me what I would say to me as a child. And my adult self told me, my child self, that one day I'd be a great person. And I was wondering if you could speak to that experience. Is this an example of a consciousness fractal? Or was my past self, child self, able to query the probable future database? Was my present self able to affect the past data phase, which in turn affects the present? Okay. Um, yeah, I can see uh, why you might think those things, because here you are a child and you get this, this voice, this knowing that uh, one day you'll be a great person. Uh, that doesn't seem to fit. Um, you begin to grow up and you go to a, 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 a hypnotherapist. He lets you talk to yourself as a child, and that's exactly what you say to them. It's exactly that thing that kept you going, that same phrase, that same statement that kept you going as a child, um, that uh, one day you would be a great person. What probably happened there, and of course, I'm just talking about probabilities. In, in the larger consciousness system, often there's, there's many, many ways that something can happen. Uh, it probably wasn't any of the things that you were thinking about. Yes, this is a uh, consciousness, conscious evolution is a fractal process. That's true. But that, that sense you had as a child that you would one day be a great person, that, that there was more to you than just this life as it seemed, and that there was a future that uh, had a lot of potential. That idea was, I would say, likely given to you by the system. You were told that because it saw that you were struggling, that you didn't, uh, you know, you didn't have the, um, the experiences that would help buoy you up, that would help, uh, you know, produce a, uh, a good chance at, at growing up and becoming love. So they kept that in your mind. You have potential. You can one day, you know, grow up to be a great person. That's possible for you. Don't be, uh, you know, don't let the, you know, don't let the, uh, the present drag you down and drag you out of that possibility. And then later, when you have grown up a bit, seen a bigger picture, and you have a chance to talk to yourself as a child, and that's a very standard question that hypnotherapists use with people. 
they, they often will ask you uh, to say something to yourself as a child because that brings out something very much at the core of people and their connection to their past and their childhood. So that's a very uh, uh, standard question to ask someone and a situation to put them in if you're a hypnotherapist. And what you came up with, of course, was just the thing that got you through, just the thing that that uh, that kept you going and working because you felt that potential that was in you. So you told your child the same the same phrase that one day you know you would be a great person, and that was not necessarily causal in the sense that you saying that is what it is you heard as a child. So I wouldn't see that through the lens of causality, that you're saying it was the thing. But you said that because at that time, that was your connection. What can you say to that child that will help that child get through? Well, what helped you get through? It was knowing that you had potential and that you weren't stymied or stuck because of the situation you were in, but you had potential beyond that situation. And you reiterated that. You said that again because that is the key thing. That was the key thing for that child. That's what helped that child, you know, keep going. So I think that's what went on. I believe it was the system helping you out from the beginning because you had potential. And then when you had the opportunity, you just restated what was necessary for that child to hear. And you knew that it was necessary because you were that child. So you said it again, but I wouldn't see it in terms of a causality that you're telling the child that is what the child actually heard because you you in the future were telling it and it got it in the past. That causality link probably didn't take place. It's probably just that uh, you were being helped with the system. That happens all the time. The system helps people who have potential and are struggling because of the situation they're in. And then the fact that you said the same thing to the child is just as most natural thing you could have said to that child. That was the that was what you knew that was the key thing. And uh, so, I think I wouldn't look for for um, a causal connection between those two, as I would that it's just pattern of being helpful, and that is the most helpful thing you can be to somebody is to give them the knowledge and the sense that things can change, that they do have potential, and not to let go of that fact, not to be defeated, but to keep moving on, keep working for that potential, and that uh, you can you can uh, uh, gain and, and develop that potential. That's a key idea. Kids that fail tend to be kids that don't feel like they have any potential. So that would be uh, my comments on, on that, uh, on that experience that you had. Thanks, Tom. I'm, I'm really through all of my experiences and, and from reading the book, I'm really, I've been really working on trying to reduce these fears and getting over this uh, low self-esteem and, and working on, on becoming more love-based. So uh, again, I thank you for your book. It's very helpful with these experiences I've had. Yeah, well, you're quite welcome. Yeah, the, you know, a, a low self-esteem becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
you feel bad about yourself and you feel like you can't accomplish much. Therefore, you don't accomplish much. You know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So to see the potential that you have, that, uh, you know, you create your reality through the choices you make. Yes, you've got a lot of things maybe to deal with and you may have a lot of baggage to carry, but you can deal with that by the choices you make. You can you can work with that. You can you can still make good choices and still evolve the quality of your consciousness, no matter what your situation is. The becoming love, the getting rid of fear can take place under, you know, awful circumstances. And then it's still a big success because that's what you're here to do. That that attitude and that feeling is is uh, you know is is golden. So you you've got the right words. You know you can you can do it. You can do something great. And just getting rid of fear and getting rid of ego is something great in itself. Thanks, Tom. All right, Tom. So, sorry, mate. Uh, next up is Vanessa, who we had the, uh, the great pleasure of hanging out with in uh, Vancouver recently. She brought along a wonderful group of people to the uh, the MBT from Head to Toe event in Vancouver. Uh, once this is over, I have to get back to editing both that and the Portland event. And then uh, we've got the Cultural Connection Tour videos. So everyone out there who's waiting, wondering where all the videos are, yes, there are lots of videos coming out soon. It's going to be like all the best holidays at once all coming at the same time. So they may already be out by the time you're watching this. So Sorry, Vanessa, I'm rambling on. Please go ahead. It's all yours. Okay. Um, so, yes, uh, Keith, we, we did. We had a great um, experience with you all when you came to Vancouver. Uh, Tom, when you left, we actually started an experiential group. So we had one of the attendees, Kevin. He was he guides it. He leads us through different experiences. So out-of-body experiences, remote healing, remote viewing. And... When I'm practicing this, I notice that my intellect gets in the way and that the exercises we use, it's, okay, imagine a rope, and then you're pulling your, your astral body out of your physical body. So then I'm like, but no, that's not working. This, I mean, this is the virtual reality. There is no astral body. So my question is, now that I'm understanding kind of the nature of reality, um, I find that I can't really use any tools. Because for me, I'm like, well, those are fake. That's not what it actually is. And I want to really know what's happening. So my understanding is basically it comes down to I'm simply switching data streams. I'm disconnecting from this data stream. And I want my intention is I want to reconnect to a new data stream. I have that intention, but nothing happens. So is there anything you can recommend for um, somebody who can't find any tools? Um, yeah, is there, is there a solution or a strategy that you could recommend? Um, yeah. Another an, another part of that, too, is the binaural beats. I know you recommend that. And why do they, those don't seem to work for me? And why don't those work for some people and they do for others? So kind of all of that. Okay, Vanessa, the thing that's probably getting in your way is your intellect. You are thinking your way through these things. You want to do it by doing, you know, you want to experience by doing something. And mm -hmm. your intellect is in charge of the doing. So when it comes to uh, a tool like climbing up the rope, you know, your intellect is in charge of that doing. And you go, well, this is all just nonsense. And it doesn't work for you because your your left brain, your your logical side kind of shuts that shuts that down. 
when it comes to just switching data streams, probably the problem is you have an expectation of suddenly you're going to be somewhere else. Suddenly there's going to be, you know, like new scenery, you know, it's like suddenly teleporting to Chicago, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, or the rainforest or something. And you're going to go blink and there it is. Now you're in the rainforest and uh, you know, it's, everything's green and, and uh, you know, it's summer there. Mm-hmm. And that expectation is getting in your way. You have an expectation. You have some sense of this, suddenly being aware in another environment and that just never seems to happen. Well, that's because that's your intellect. It's not a doing process. It's a being process. So what you need to do is to not be, you not have that expectation, not have any idea what it's going to be like. It might not be anything at all. It may just be gray for a while because your intellect wants to make up something but it doesn't want to make up anything it wants it to be real not imaginary so mm-hmm. you're stuck anything that happens you immediately have to you immediately do a judgment did i just make that up is that a ma- my own imagination or is that something real and as soon as you become judgmental you're in election charge and nothing's going to happen so you need to just say I, you know, I want to change data streams. I just want to experience something that would be of value to me. That's all. Just something that would be of value to me. And then, you know, if you're at that kind of point consciousness state where you've kind of let go of the physical reality, you're not really operating in a physical reality anymore, then just open up your mind. And if what you see or feel is, is, uh, you know, is almost anything, no matter how trivial it is, even if what you you see is smoke, right, fog, well, interact with the fog. Go into the fog. You see, don't just say, ah, fog, you know, that's nothing. Um, I, You know, it's not working. Go into the fog. If what you see is something else, connect with it. Engage it. So engage whatever it is that's there. Even engage the nothingness. Be a part of it. What is it to feel like nothingness? What is it to feel like smog or fog, whole bunch of little droplets suspended in the air. What would that be like? You see, engage it. As you engage things, just let things happen. Don't judge them as to whether they're real or your imagination. Just experience. You're there to have an experience, not there to judge an experience and see how good it is. Not even there to judge it and see whether it's real or imagined. That's not the point. You're there to have an experience. Now, once you've had these experiences and had these experiences and you've had this experience or something like it or similar ones, you know, 50 times, now you have enough information that you can judge the experience. But when you first interact with something, you can't judge the experience. You don't have any data. You don't have any experience on which to judge it. So you ju- you try to judge it and say, well, am, you know, am I really someplace else or am I making it up? And you can't come to a conclusion because you don't have enough experience. So that then just blows the whole thing because you can't verify that it's real and not just you making it up. So don't be judgmental. Just experience it. Eventually, you will have the experience. You know, you will have done this enough times 
that now you can judge it. And the judgment shouldn't be, is it real? It should be, is it useful? Am I learning anything? Or even, is it fun? You know, am I gaining any perspective from it? Is there something of value in here for me? And if there is, then keep working with it, keep pursuing it. But don't judge it. Don't have any expectations on it. Just work with whatever you get and go with it. Mm-hmm. You see, there's, there's the, the data streams that you get can come from several places. One, it can come from the larger conscious system. Two, it can come from some other individuated unit of consciousness. And three, it can come from yourself, which we call imagination. You can't tell any of those apart. They all look exactly the same. So don't shut it all down because you can't prove to yourself on the spot that it's not your imagination, except that your imagination is really a very powerful thing. Because if you get out there, even if it's your imagination, once you start connecting and engaging things, then what started as imagination can very easily turn into something else, you see. So there's mm-hmm. lots of data streams out there. So what start is maybe your own data stream, which maybe will help you in your imagination. Get away from the physical, which is what you're leaving. That's fine. That can easily transition into something else just through your engagement of things. So you're just experiencing inner space. And it doesn't matter exactly where that inner space comes from. Just go experience it. And then after you've experienced it time and time and time again, now you can judge it for usefulness. If it's useful, keep going. If it isn't, if it's, you think it's a complete waste of time, you're not learning anything, you're not growing, you're not finding anything of value in it, then do something else. Disconnect from those experiences and start over. Ask the system to maybe give you something else that is, or to explain to you why these things that you have been doing is useful. You know, so just work with whatever you have, even if whatever you have is a gray fog, you can work with that. So I think that's your problem is that you're leading with your intellect. Your intellect is trying to make judgments and has expectations much too early in the game. And all of that is you're just getting in your own way. Mm -hmm. Relax, let it go. Don't have such a need to do it. The more you have, I really want to do this. I really want to do this. That will prevent you from doing it because that puts it up into your intellect and it makes you judge. Am I doing it? Am I doing it now? You know, and then if, if the answer is yes, you'll be so excited about the fact you're doing it that it will stop and it will go away. So you need to just relax, let go, and say, I'm going to have an experience of some sort. I have no idea what this experience is going to be like, whether it will be meaningful or not. I don't know, but it's going to be my experience. And then just have it. And no mm-hmm. tags, no expectations. Uh, it doesn't have to be you floating above your, your, you know, in the air above your body, looking back at you sleeping in the bed. You know, you don't need any of that. Just do it. Right. Uh, yeah, it's definitely the expectations because I hear people going, oh, it's like way more real than this reality when you get out of body. It's so intense. It's like high up. And I'm like, none of that happens to me. It's all black. And I get feelings. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, well, so you, yeah, you have an expectation of what it's supposed to be like, and it's not like that, so uh, obviously you're not doing it right. Well, those expectations are what's getting in the way. Just do it and see what happens. Have an experience. Build on those experiences. Whatever happens the first time, 
you can go back to it the second time and, and start from where you left off. Just keep working with it and don't worry about comparing it to what anybody else has. Let it be mm-hmm. your own experience. Eventually, it will get as meaningful as you can use. Yeah, okay. And is there any correlation between your ability to get out of body and the quality of your consciousness in terms of your evolution? So the more evolved you are, the easier it is for you to get out of body. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. You see, these things are much harder to do when you're not ready for them. If, you know, getting out of body and, and experiencing the larger system is just not that important. What's important is for you to grow up, to get rid of your fear, get rid of your ego. That's what's really important. And if you do that, you don't ever have to go out of your body or use, you know, do anything that is paranormal. All of that is extra. But yes, as you do grow up and you do get rid of your fear and you do develop your awareness of your being level to where you are thinking and acting more out of the being level and less out of the, you know, the judging, analyzing intellect, the more, the easier and easier it is to do these things that are paranormal. They become simpler. And as much as you have fear and, and uh, you're dominated with, with the intellect and you're not functioning at the being level, they become more and more difficult. Mm. So yes, just growing up is the first step, you know, that helps just keep working on that. But also you can try these other things. Just uh, if it turns out to be what you call a daydream, you know, Mm -hmm. that's all right. Experience it, work with it, go into it, take it further. Pretty soon it'll turn into something else. Okay. Okay. Just last statement, I promise is, so you're saying that I'm a low quality consciousness and I'm pretty de-evolved because I can't get out of body? (laughs) No, I'm saying you are getting in your own way with an intellect that just won't sit down and be quiet. Okay. Got it. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Tom, I'm going to read um, a question from forum user somebody. He says, Tom, now that you've ruined sugar for me, now he says he's just kidding, but I really don't think he is. Um, is there anything else that I should know to avoid food wars in order to have out-of-body experiences? I've only had one conscious out-of-body in my entire life over three decades ago, which was a doozy with a 360-degree visions, but I have since been unable to reproduce that or any other like experience. Either the larger consciousness system has purposely locked me out for some reason, or is it that pesky sugar that was doing it? <laughs> yes. Uh, not, not eating sugar isn't going to make you go out of body. Obviously, you know, uh, what we do with our body, what, the, why the body matters to us, uh, using our mind and, con- and controlling our consciousness is that if the body is, you know, the body sets the constraints on what the consciousness can do with that body. Okay, so you have an avatar, that's the body. And the the rule set, the biology that drives that body sets constraints on what the consciousness can do with that body. Now, it's obvious in something like, uh, you know, if you have only one arm, then that sets a constraint on the consciousness of what the consciousness can do with that one-armed avatar. Okay, so the, that's pretty obvious. 
but it's also true of your brain chemistry. If your brain chemistry is unstable, then that sets constraints on the consciousness of what it can do with an avatar with unstable brain chemistry. Okay, now when you eat sugar, sugar is, is glucose is, is a very fundamental part of the fuel that, that your body runs on, that your brain operates on. And when those glucose levels are unstable because you're eating sugar constantly and they're going up and down and up and down, you're just putting, you're just making it more difficult for your consciousness to operate that avatar because now it has to operate an avatar with unstable chemistry. Okay, so it's not that there's something uh, magic about uh, diet that's suddenly going to make you a wizard. You know, it doesn't, it's not like that. You can't eat your, eat your way into, you know, uh, paranormal things at all. It's just that by eating well and taking care of your body and exercising and getting the amount of rest you need and all that stuff, you minimize the constraints that, that the rule set puts on the consciousness for what the conscious can do with that avatar. So basically, you're eliminating roadblocks. You're eliminating barriers by having a healthy, fit body. So that's the reason for, uh, you know, you let go of sugar because sugar tends to destabilize the environment that the brain works in because we don't eat just sugar once. You know, we eat sugar, you know, every meal has sugar in it for most people. Almost every item in every meal has sugar in it. You know, even your French fries and your hamburger probably have sugar in them. You know, your sugar is in almost everything because most people are addicted to sugar. And the way that a food producer can get people to buy his food is by putting sugar in it. Because people who are addicted to it will prefer it, even if it's so little that they can't taste it. Their body knows that they're getting it. They just like it better. So if you want to sell food on the market, put sugar in it because 99.9999% of all the people that might buy your food are probably addicted to sugar. It's just a simple thing. So you go through the day and the food that you eat tends to have sugar in it. The things you drink tend to have sugar in it. Uh, and then you tend to eat sugar in between meals as snacks. It takes about four or five hours for that. When you eat something that's, that has sugar in it, it takes four or five hours before that brain chemistry starts to settle down again from the changing glucose levels in your bloodstream. Just about time it settles down, it's time for another meal. And if you eat in between meals, then it never has a chance to even begin to settle down. So you just keep that glucose levels constantly changing which makes it unstable. All right, so it's not like uh, you know, you're going to uh, go out of body because you stopped eating sugar. What you will do, though, is be able to think more clearly. You'll be able to uh, hold a meditation state longer. You won't have so many random thoughts. Your mind will settle a lot. You'll feel more centered. That's what... Uh, staying away from sugar and preservatives and, you know, artificial colors and all the rest of the stuff that messes up our body chemistry and gives our body a hard time. And if you exercise, your body will be fit and so on. So that's really the body-mind connection it has to do with uh, trying to minimize the constraints that the consciousness has to work with when it works with its avatar. I mean, did I did I answer that one, Keith, or was there more to it? 
No, Tom, I think you did. Um, you know, we talk about that pesky sugar a lot, but we never really talk so much about salt. Now, John, who's with us today, did have a couple of comments about that, and I wish we had a salt expert in the in the room here today. When we do, um, Tom, you've never talked about salt. Does that mean that you don't agree that table salt is necessarily bad for you? You know, salts such as pink Himalayan or the, the Celtic salts are supposedly better options. So, when you make your famous bean soup, do you actually? put salt in it i mean the body needs to have salt right oh when i make my famous bean soup i don't put any salt in it uh <laughs> it just uh, there's enough usually that comes in you know with with the beans i use beans out of a can and typically you know they will have some salt in them and that's sufficient um i have read that about a thousand uh, milligrams or about a gram of salt a day is necessary. Uh, salt, uh, you know, provides some of the some of the the uh, ions necessary for osmosis to work when it comes to getting toxins in, you know, out of the blood and getting things into the blood. So having ions and sodium ions are just a, another set of ions, but having those sorts of things in your bloodstream is necessary. Um, if you'll notice at least some time ago when it got very, very hot and muggy, uh, and people were working outside and sweating a lot, they'd pass around salt pills. Well, the reason is that when you sweat, you get out, you get rid of a lot of that salt. It's salt water that you sweat out. And if you don't replace that salt, you end up more sensitive to heat stroke and other things. Your body doesn't function as well. So you're right, Keith. Salt is fundamentally necessary. Salts of some sort. Now, I say salt. I always don't mean table salts, but salts is a whole group of elements that are called salts. Okay, Salts are necessary in your, in your uh, biochemistry or you'll drop over dead. Matter of fact, uh, um, water in excess can be toxic. If you were to sit down and drink like, you know, two or three gallons of water within, a, say, an hour, it might kill you. And the reason for that is you would no longer have the salinity necessary, you know, in your biochemistry to, you know, to support life. You would have basically leached most of the salt out. You've diluted it to the point that your osmosis doesn't work anymore. Um, anyway, so, yeah, salt's necessary. But how much salt is the question? And I've heard that about a gram a day is sufficient. I've also read that two grams a day is okay. I tend to eat about a gram a day or less of salt, and I don't seem to have any physical problems for it. So as long as you're going to need some salt, some, uh, some ions in your, in your system, then you might as well use a salt that is higher quality, has less, uh, you know, toxic substances in it, less processing to make it, and just get a natural, high-quality salt that uh, is is uh, hopefully has a lot of minerals with it. You know, like a natural sea salt, natural salt that uh, you find, you know, when when seawater evaporates, that sort of thing. So, and of course, our seawater is terribly polluted. These days, you know, seawater is not the is not the clear, pure stuff that it used to be. It tends to have all kinds of crud in it. So um, just because it's sea salt doesn't mean that it's healthy salt. Um, you know, you can get salt that is pulled out of the ground in places like, uh, you know, Tibet 
or uh, you know other places that uh, actually many many eons ago you know were underwater and had salt deposits but yeah so getting a good quality salt is probably better for your one gram or less a day now if you only had half a gram would that be enough to give you physical problems probably not you know you can probably there's some minimum that's probably different for every individual that you need of some something that has salt in it but you know a lot of things will have will have uh you know sodium ions in it you don't have to eat salt to get the the ions you need you can get that when you eat vegetables and when you eat other things you get some of it so how's that keith is that enough about salt uh, pretty much, Tom, it is. I mean, it, obviously, table salt is bleached with hexane. It's then got ferrocyanide added to it, which are the additives you're mentioning. But it's impossible to avoid. It is in everything. If you do have a better diet, then you do avoid those salts. But the pink Himalayan, very, very good, clean quality salt. If you want to buy American salt, J.Q. Dickinson, West Virginia, has some of the purest salt on planet Earth from the remains of the Iopetus Ocean underneath Appalachia. So there's a, there's a point of view for anyone that wants good salt. Go check out J.Q. Dickinson's Salt Works. All right, John, we're going to go back to you. Your next question on abilities and individual skills. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I did have a, a question about that. What I posted on the forum was uh, – um, how are individual skills applied to an IUOC by the LCS? And do abilities and um, talents, if you like, do they ever change from lifetime to lifetime? Or can we define ourselves by that, by our individual skills and abilities? Um, our individual skills and abilities do change from lifetime to lifetime. What we carry over from lifetime to lifetime is basically a, the quality of consciousness that we've earned, how much have we grown up, how much have we reduced our fear, that carries over uh, from lifetime to lifetime so that we are accumulating quality of consciousness with each um, you know, experience packet that we have. But how we apply that quality of consciousness uh, isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily carry over. It uh, may be... Um, you know, when I say that it doesn't necessarily carry over, I, I don't mean that it can't. I don't mean that people can't take skills with them to another lifetime. It's possible. Yes, they can. But in general, uh, we develop new abilities and skills each time. Now, we may get very partial to certain abilities and skills, things that we have used to great advantage in our growth, and we may kind of focus on those, in which case we may carry that, that trend, you know, from lifetime to lifetime. We may, we may, uh, and you know, we, we have, sometimes you'll have a kid and it'd be three years old and he's playing the piano already, you know, and by five, you know, he's a virtuoso that's, that's playing in concerts and so on. Well, good chance that skill, you know, came with him to some extent. It wasn't that he was starting out from, from scratch on that skill. But it's not a typical thing, and only when there's a very strong attachment to particular skills would they then reestablish themselves. And it's not really that you bring it with you, but you bring the potential for it, the propensity for it, and you reestablish it. And you have, you have kind of the, um, the sense of it, I guess an intuitive connection with it. Not that you have facts about it. You'd still have to learn how to read music, even if, 
even if you uh, were a natural, you know, playing an instrument, you still have to learn the facts of it because you don't come with that kind of information. But you would have an intuitive sense of how it worked. So the reading of the music would come easily. You see, you still have to relearn it. You still have to figure it out from scratch, but it could come very easily because you are intuitively, you have the knowledge. Specifically, intellectually, you don't. You have to start from scratch every time. But intuitively, you do. And that's really true with all of the things that come with our quality of consciousness. That quality of consciousness gives you a, a sense of how the world works intuitively. You kind of know things. So when you see the patterns click, it kind of goes in and say, oh, yeah, I recognize this. Um, you know, this makes sense to me. So you understand. You, you get your bigger picture uh, comes back, but you still have to make those choices to bring it back. In other words, you come here with potential and with intuitive connections. And though you have to start over as a baby, putting it all together, you can put it together faster if you've already been there and done that. So by the time you're 19 or 20 or 30 or 40, you're back about to where you were. And now you can go on and make more progress past that point. But it takes you a while to re-grasp the amount of growth, expressing the amount of growth that you had before. So nobody gets a nobody gets a uh, um, you know nobody gets to start already advanced in in any sense other than their quality. You just have to rebuild that quality up, and if you have if it makes intuitive sense to you, you can just build it. You can rebuild it much more quickly. You don't have to struggle to rebuild it. Now, most of us, we don't ever excel that much in anything that we get that obsessed with it that we necessarily come back and do it again. Mostly, we get talents and skills that, you know, life brings to us because you were at the right place at the right time. You ended up being a teacher. And because I was at the right place at the right time, I ended up being a physicist. Mostly, it has to do with influences, you know, that make you think this would be a nice career or other things. Occasionally... You come into this world knowing that you want to be a teacher, knowing that you want to be a scientist or something, and you got that at two or three years old and it never leaves you. Well, that may be a kind of a, a scripted thing for this lifetime. That's a profession you've, you've chosen or is important to you, or that's something you've done for the last three or four lifetimes, and you're getting a lot of growth out of it, so you want to continue it. It's hard to say, but most people... They just come and uh, what they develop into and the skills and the abilities they develop are just things that they happen to develop with the quality that they have. They could have developed any of a dozen things and they just happen to pick something because that's what their dad did. Or, you know, that's what just kind of opened up in front of them and the time came to make a career choice. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Okay, Tom, we are going to go and do a couple more questions from the people in the room. Uh, if you're watching at home, uh, we do give preference to people who have joined us on the day of the Fireside Chat. So we've got a couple more from them, and then we will be going on to forum user-submitted questions. Uh, Mark, the next question is yours. The New Age community talks about the turning of the age. Uh, and, Tom, you mentioned that as we grow up and we evolve, we are no longer who we were. 
Is this change mostly internal, something like a chrysalis changing into a butterfly? Are we, as a human species, experiencing this type of evolution in this turning of the age? Is this possibly how Neanderthals evolved into the human species by becoming love, by becoming more love and community based? Um, well, that's a series of questions. Let me um, let me uh, start at the beginning there. Uh, yes. It is something like a chrysalis changing into a butterfly, except we keep the same form. But when we grow up, we really become somebody different. We are not the same person we were before. We have the same avatar, so we look the same. You know, the, the, the worm changed into a butterfly, so they have a physical metamorphosis. We have a, a spiritual metamorphosis, you should say, uh, I, you know, we could say, or um, uh, kind of internally you know, consciousness metamorphosis, but we become a different person as we grow up. It's not just the same person who's behaving better because that wouldn't be growing up. That would be acting. Okay, We can improve our behavior by acting, but to really grow up, you change. You're different. You're not acting better. You are better. See, there's a, there's a difference there. So, yes, it's a, it is a change. You're a different person at that point. Um, I don't know that it is related to something called the turning of the age. Um, we do this all the time. We do this all along. That's what every human that's ever been on this planet has done. It's entire life is try to grow up, try to change, try to lower its entropy, become something better than what it was before. So we're making these, these changes all along, all the time, everybody since the beginning of time. So it's not like really now that it's the turning of the age, this is going to happen a lot more, a lot less. But we are coming, as I mentioned earlier, we are coming to a time that I think we can make a lot of progress, um, move forward uh, much faster than we have before because we have all the tools and insights now in place to do that, which we never had before. So... I wouldn't uh, subscribe that because it was some turning of the age, but I would say that uh, things are going to speed up. You know, they talk about Internet time where things happen faster than they used to. Well, things are happening faster, I think, uh, now, and that growing up can happen faster as well. Uh, let's see. Um, so, yes, we are experiencing that, and uh, that's not how Neanderthals evolved into humans, though. Neanderthals did not evolve into humans. Neanderthals became extinct. They simply don't exist anymore. They were a, another uh, subspecies of, of uh, you know, uh, who we call them. Um, I don't remember the right word to describe them, but for, for the, uh, you know, the naked apes that walked on two feet and, uh, you know, looked more humanoid, there were several subspecies of those, and Neanderthal was one. And they just didn't make it through the evolutionary hurdles. And we did, humans did, because we were better at just one thing, and that's reproducing. We were much better at reproducing, and we eventually just overwhelmed them with numbers. And we did uh, interbreed with Neanderthal. Most of us walking around today have like 5 or 10 or 20% of Neanderthal genes you know, with us. And they just then disappeared. We subsumed them, you might say, or uh, you know, absorbed them. 
basically. And as a, as a separate species, they just disappeared. They became integrated with us. And um, for the most part, uh, we outnumbered them very quickly. And power comes in numbers. So we outpowered them as well uh, in time. So that's one thing we're good at is reproducing. They evidently weren't nearly so good at that as as we were. So that was our advantage. You know, we had some really good strategies for reproducing that uh, other critters did not take. And uh, part of that is what's created, you know, a very difference between uh, males and females in our uh, species. In Neanderthal, the, there wasn't that big a difference between males and females. They were more or less the same height and weight, and it seems like everybody kind of did everything. There wasn't the the uh, uh, breakdown of of, um, of different functions for for different sexes. So the females specialized in the things they needed to specialize to make sure that more and more humans grew up and became adults, and the males specialized in what they specialized in too. So the specializations in the things that needed to be done made it more efficient for us to have babies and have them survive than it was for the Neanderthals. So, you know, Henry Ford discovered the same thing you know, 2,500 years later when uh, he decided that specialization really improved the assembly line. Instead of having everybody do everything, if you got people to do something very, very well and made that to work with other people doing the other things very, very well, then you ended up with a more efficient, uh, more powerful process than if everybody just worked on everything and does it. So we did that early on in our evolution when it came to how do you, uh, how do you keep more humans alive longer and create more, and we specialized male and female in the special tasks, and we outbred the Neanderthals. And like I say, we, we, we uh, probably, uh, the main reason that they went extinct, there was another competing species that was better evolutionary than they were. So they just got absorbed and got snuffed out. But anyway, I hope that answered, answered your thing. Yes, that's what we're all doing. We're all evolving. We're all changing. We're all becoming, um, you know, something uh, something different than we were. But we've always been doing that. And hopefully we'll always continue to do that. Okay. Uh, I hope that answers your question, John. Uh, we're going to go to Vanessa next. Vanessa, it's all yours. I um, am really leaning towards wanting to understand this reality frame and how it works in terms of the data stream, where it comes from, um, how I connect to it, what's actually happening when I connect to it, so fractal processing. So can you point me in the right direction as to how I can further my understanding? Should I just go play No Man's Sky or? Okay, Vanessa, we're going to get back almost to the same answer we had last time, and that is you're approaching this process intellectually. You want to understand every little detail of it, and you think that if you understand it all, then you can master it, and then you'll be right on top of it uh, mastering the thing if you just intellectually understand it all. It's not about intellectually understanding anything. It's about being, and that's part of the problem. So not, you know, it, it's not that important 
to understand the details. But if you just want to understand them anyway, because you're a bright girl and you're very uh, you know, intellectual, uh, it's the way you approach life, then my advice there is don't worry about the details. Get the big picture. If you understand the big picture, how it works, don't keep trying to push that down in the low, you know, lower and lower levels of detail. Just keep it at a higher level of understanding. Because all these things that we talk about, you know, IUOCs and free will awareness units and, you know, the larger consciousness system and all these things are metaphors. They're metaphors for functions of consciousness. And we break consciousness up into its functions and make metaphors to represent those functions so that we can talk about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to have a conversation about how it worked or what it was or how it did anything. And metaphors can't be reduced you know in their in their detail lower and lower and lower it doesn't work like that a metaphor is only good at a certain level if you try to push it into too much detail it just doesn't make any sense anymore now here's a good example here's a metaphor her eyes were as blue as the deep blue sea Okay, you've maybe read that in literature someplace. Blue eyes, as blue as the deep blue sea. Well, that's a metaphor. Now, we just accept that metaphor for what it means, for what it means to us from our experience. We don't say, what sea? Which sea was that? Was that the Sargasso Sea or was that the Mediterranean Sea? Because, you know, they're different colors and they have different <laughs> kinds of blue. You see, now what sea was that? And and how bright was it? Was the sun shining or was it, you know, afternoon? Because that makes the blue totally different. And how deep was the sea? Because the depth of the sea really changes the color that you get from it. You know, it has that grass growing and it's only 10 feet under the water. So you don't try to, you see, you push a metaphor down into more and more detail and it no longer makes any sense. It's, you miss the point. So we're dealing in metaphors here, and if you try to keep pushing that detail down and down and down, you'll just get a lot of nonsense that really doesn't make any sense anymore, and that's what's confusing you. So just keep it up, keep it right up at a higher level. That okay, I get it on a higher level. I don't need to know all the details because Mm -hmm. the details aren't really important. If you understand it on a higher level, then you know what's going on. You know how it works. And to try yeah. to get that down to the to more precision, you see, just isn't mm-hmm. helpful. Now that's what we do in this reality, in our virtual reality. We keep that's what science does, right? They keep digging and digging down deeper and deeper and deeper, and they get more and more fundamental understandings of what they're doing as they dig deeper. Well, that's different. They're digging into a rule set, and that rule set has a lot of depth in it. We're not digging into a rule set. We're digging into concepts. This is a conceptual description, and we use Mm -hmm. metaphors. And you can't just keep digging down, 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 because instead of getting more fundamental information and understanding, you get nonsense if you try Mm -hmm. to dig too deep into metaphors. So that's another thing. That's really good feedback. I was laughing because that's what I do when somebody would say, if somebody says, her eyes are as deep as deep blue sea, I would be like, what sea? Which sea? How funny was that chain? I'd go into my intellect. (laughs) I can totally relate to that. Um, The thing is, now that we have this book club, we're getting into the more kind of details of how this virtual reality works and how consciousness evolves. 
And and that's all about the details, right? So, I mean, isn't that helpful to understand this? It's what your book describes. It's only helpful to understand it to the point where it's only helpful to understand it to the point where it's helpful. You know, that's not very helpful, is it? It's only it's only helpful as long as you keep it up at a level where it makes sense. If you keep pushing it down to a level that it really doesn't matter, you're just trying to make it more and more specific. So you have to realize when you get into too much detail, the details don't matter. So what if it's this way or that way? doesn't matter. What matters is, you know, this understanding. What matters is her eyes were very deep blue, you know, that you could sink into. It was that kind of blue. It doesn't matter which sea it was. You know, stay up at the level where it makes sense and where it's important. Don't try to get down into too much detail. Now, I take my metaphors, and, you know, the, more, the better the metaphor is, the more detail you can squeeze out of it. You know, a really, a really uh, top level or metaphor, like the, her eyes are blue as a deep blue sea, that's a very top level metaphor. And you can't push that down in any detail at all. You just have to take that at face value. And the metaphors that I use in describing the conscious system tend to be metaphors based in uh, computer science, you know, and, and uh, virtual reality sort of thing. And those metaphors fit the nature of reality really, really well. So you can push those down some into detail. And I've worked them down into about as much detail that I thought was reasonable. And that after that, you know, we're just making stuff up. It doesn't really serve the metaphor to go any lower than that. And okay. so I'll, I do go down into some detail. But if I'd say that if you push it much further than that, you're probably just creating confusion that really isn't meaningful. Okay. So as you get in your book club and you start, you know, starting to split hairs on, you know, whether it's this way or that way, it's probably not important. You mm -hmm. probably ought to be uh, working on uh, reducing your fear and ego instead of trying to split the hair, you know, in, in two more pieces. Yeah. And often, often what happens is we get into the splitting the hairs because we really don't want to spend that time working on our fears because working on our fears is a thing that kind of hurts and doesn't feel good and makes us have courage. And it's that mm -hmm. stuff that, well, I'll do that tomorrow. You know, today I'm going to figure this thing out in more detail. So don't get distracted by the details. Stay focused on the stuff that matters.